welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode of Office Hours, host Jack Del Hanty speaks with Stanford sociologist Doug McAdam, whose 2014 co-authored book, Deeply Divided, Racial Politics and Social Movements in Post-War America, traces the roots of polarization in today's politics back to the national struggle over civil rights in the 1960s. In their conversation, Jack and Doug focus particularly on tensions between modern social movements and the interests of party leaders developing in this year's presidential election. And they also consider how the ongoing national conversation about racial inequality might be changing how Americans relate to major political parties. Doug McAdam, welcome to Office Hours. Thank you for joining us today. One of the core claims of this book is that today, American politics are more divided than they have been at any point in recent history. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean when you say this? Well, I mean, what, what I don't mean is that the sort of the country as a whole is deeply divided. I think it's, it's an interesting situation. You've got more polarization in Congress than at any point in American history, at least in the House of Representatives. Maybe we've been in the Senate, maybe it's been as polarized in the past. This is based on really good data on the voting records of the members of Congress that's been compiled by a couple of political scientists. So we know that Congress is deeply divided. Party activists in both parties are deeply divided and can't stand each other. But the American public as a whole it does not appear to be quite as divided as, uh, or not anywhere near as divided as the party activists. Um, if you look at sort of public opinion data on the most controversial issues, immigration reform, uh, abortion, gun control, those, those numbers really, the time series data on those issues have not really changed much over time. And the uh, the modal answer uh, or response by survey respondents to those issues remains kind of moderate centrist. So, again, the modal apolitical median voter does not appear to be dramatically more polarized or partisan uh, now than in the past. But party activists are and Congress certainly is. So it sounds like your explanation is much more about the activities of elites, of party leaders, and activists than about everyday people having more polarized opinions. And in the book, you talk quite a bit about the role of race in steering this dynamic, going back as far as the immediate post-war era. Can you tell us a little bit more about how questions of race shaped the agendas and the strategies of the parties and movement activists that have sparked this deep political polarization? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, the role of race has just been huge. Um, I, don't, I don't see a more powerful single structuring dynamic in, in American politics um, over, over this period of time. And by that, I mean the sort of post-war period to today. And it's, it's bound up with region as well. I mean, you know, the, when the South was uh, solidly democratic. Uh, it was, in fact, referred to as the solid South. And what made the South solid was 
you know, the distinctive history of race and racial conflict in the region. That's what bound uh, the, the South, I should say the white South, to the Democratic Party. And uh, to accommodate sort of the racial sensitivities of the region, uh, you know, the Democratic Party, at least the, the establishment within the Democratic Party, uh, basically held the issue of race at arm's length. Um, so race was structured into the strategic logic and electoral coalition of the Democratic Party from basically the beginning of the Civil War until the 1960s. And then the pressure of the civil rights movement really began pushing two Democratic administrations, Kennedy and Johnson, uh, left on the issue of race and later on other issues. And the, the white South, angered by the kind of embrace of civil rights reform by Kennedy and especially Johnson, eventually sort of leaves the Democratic Party, the New Deal coalition, and re Republicans, the, the GOP begins to move sharply right to court the white South, and in fact, racial conservatives around the country generally. And by even by the end of the day, it's worth, worth mentioning that as of 1960, the Republicans were much more liberal on, at least in the aggregate, on civil rights issues than Democrats. But by the end of the 60s, as the Republicans moved right to court the votes of white racial conservatives, by the end of the decade, they really were on their way to becoming the Republican Party we know today. That is a party that's uniquely dependent on support by white racial conservatives. So first the Democrats and then the Republicans in seeking the solid South, the electoral votes of the solid South, built race fundamentally into their, again, electoral strategies. Um, and I just can't think of another factor that's had that kind of powerful structuring effect on American politics in that period. So you're suggesting that the Republican parties moved to the right and what you describe in the book as the Democratic Party's more temporary move to the left in the 1960s was largely in response to the question of race. That's something that I don't think a lot of people hear very much about today. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I, we're hearing more about it now given the very strange electoral season we are uh, experiencing. I mean, you know, uh, the Trump is getting heavily criticized, obviously, for pretty extreme views on, on race, not just with respect to African-Americans, but uh, Mexican immigrants, uh, Muslims, etc. And so we're hearing a lot about it. I find it really interesting that the certain sort of establishment figures in the Republican Party are, are hammering Trump over this when they, in fact, helped very much create a party that is, again, this coalition of, of white racial conservatives. Uh, Harry Reid the other day criticized, you know, the, the Republican establishment for being hypocritical in, in, in criticizing Trump for his extreme racial views, citing Mitt Romney. And I think that's, that's a reasonable, you know, point to be made by Reid. Romney, after all, was the one who said 47 percent sort of the American public is, are undeserving. And he specifically said these the undeserving are overwhelmingly racial minorities, 
immigrants, et cetera. Um, and you, there's been 50 years of thinly veiled kind of racial, racialized rhetoric uh, in the Republican Party that Trump is simply extending in maybe more extreme ways. Yeah, that's interesting because maybe one aspect of this dynamic of race and electoral politics today that a lot of people talk about is the Tea Party. But you suggest throughout the book that the Tea Party's mobilization, which uses racial frames in certain ways, is not necessarily as new as it might seem to people observing politics today. That, in fact, social movement organizations, in some ways the predecessors to today's Tea Party, have been really influential in this dynamic of race steering the influence of the parties. So what's this argument that you're making about how social movement organizations have been central to the use of race as a steering mechanism? Yeah, um, well, it's not social movement organizations, formal social movement organizations per se, but simply the force of movements sort of more generally. Um, yeah, this is the other, I think. And sorry, could you elaborate on that distinction between social movement organizations and social movements? Sure, I mean... There, there's, as you well know, there's this term social movement organizations, SMOs, which, which really refer to, you know, uh, specific organizations that purport to speak for or on behalf of sort of broader movements. So the NAACP, the National Organization of Women, et cetera, et cetera, are social movement organizations. But, but they're not, you know, movements are much broader, more amorphous phenomena than that. And I think the real power of movements doesn't necessarily come from those organizations, but from the kind of mass energies um, that, that movements unleash. And so when you're talking about party politics as they evolved from the 60s into the 70s, the Southern strategy and so on, you're talking about movements more than movement organizations. So what did that look like? Well, I mean, again, I've already mentioned that, uh, the, the, you know, the Democrats for literally 100 years uh, remained largely silent on the issue of race because they were accommodating the regional sensitivities of the Southern Dixiecrats, the Southern wing of the party. Um, you know, Kennedy came to office in 1960, not as a civil rights advocate at all, uh, and did not want to go there. But the movement, the civil rights movement, which was at its peak during his administration and, and Johnson's, just unleashed extraordinary pressure, put enormous pressure on the American state, if you will, to kind of put its racial house in order. It has to be remembered that these are the Cold War years, and we are locked into this struggle with the Soviet Union during this period for influence around the globe. And the Soviet Union is... Uh, playing up every racial incident in the United States to maximum sort of uh, propaganda benefit around the world. And so that's, I think, largely what's motivating Kennedy uh, and, and Johnson, maybe a little bit less so. But in any case, this is a period of extraordinary sustained mobilization by, the, by civil rights forces. And that pressure pushes those administrations and, the Demo and, by extension, the Democratic Party off-center and sharply to the left on the issue of race. And, again, as the decade wears on, on other issues as well. So that's an example of the centrifugal force of movements really powerfully impacting 
not just legislation, but in fact, the logic and structure of the Democratic Party. And as I mentioned, as there's another parallel struggle going on in response to the civil rights movement, variously referred to as the white resistance movement or the white backlash in the 1960s. And this is a movement too. Um, you know, it, 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 again, is not being driven by centralized social movement organizations, but by white resistance to the civil rights movement, not just in the South, but in the North as well. And that movement, if you will, and the opportunity it affords the Republican Party is pushing the GOP sharply to the right. So that the party by 1970, as I as I said earlier, looks nothing like the party circa 1960. This was this is the party of Lincoln. This is a party that, in the aggregate, was liberal on matters of race, or at least more liberal than the Democrats in 1960. By 1970, the party has shifted sharply to the right, and it's under the centrifugal pressure of what I'm calling the white backlash or white resistance movement movements associated with race. Indeed. I mean, yes, and there's a there's a really important figure operating during this period. We we don't remember him very much, but his name was George Wallace. He was the arch segregationist governor of Alabama, and he uh, both challenged Johnson for the Democratic nomination in 1964 and did remarkably well in primaries especially uh, or not especially, but including in the North, which surprised a lot of observers. He then ran as a third party candidate in 68 and took the electoral votes of five Southern states. Uh, you know, people say, well, he, he's, a, no, he's campaigning for president, so he's a party figure. No, he, he was a movement figure, much more than he was a standard issue, party-based uh, sort of all, uh, a candidate for office. He, more like Bernie Sanders, more like Donald Trump. So the idea that just because you're running for elected office, that must mean you're part of the party. Movements, the line between movements and parties is very blurry. And lots of campaigns have more a movement feel than a party feel. And that was true for Wallace. Yeah, and it seems to be true today, as we see in our politics at this moment. But I'd like to come back to this question of how racial movements in particular had this hugely strong effect on parties' priorities and strategies during this time period. There are also many social movements that don't have to do with race. So what is it about racial movements that made them in particular so influential in this period? Is it simply because of the civil rights movement and the consternation that that caused in the South and the way that it incentivized a rightward shift in the Republican Party? Or is there something that goes back even further about race in the American context more broadly that makes racially infused movements more influential than others? Again, a great, a really interesting and hard question. I, I, I'm of two minds. Um, I, I, I think, you know, race, and in particular, black-white, the, the, the relations and conflict um, between African-Americans and, and white Americans has been stitched into the fabric of the country from the very beginning. And, and you know, it just has been so central to 
every aspect of American life and especially American politics. So maybe there's something distinctive about race focused movements in the American context because of our distinctive history. Uh, maybe, uh, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not inclined to believe that there have been movements, other kinds of movements at other periods in American history that have exerted very powerful centrifugal influence of the sort we're talking about. Think of labor in the thirties, for instance, um, and, and in the post-war period for that matter. Um, so I don't know that there's something inherently more influential or powerful uh, of race-focused movements, even in the distinctive American context. But in the period we're talking about, as I said earlier, the electoral the, this the electoral votes of the Solid South are just such an amazing electoral sort of resource for whichever party can command them, and the Democrats. By, by virtue of uh, sort of con uh, sort of possessing, if you will, or having the loyalty, enjoying the loyalty of the white South uh, prior to the 60s, uh, built race into sort of into its the logic and, and strategic organization of the party. And Republicans sensing that the white South was in play, during the 60s, you know, and aggressively courting the white South, over time, the, the South now is the foundation of the Republican Party. Half of the members of the House, the Republican House delegation, are Democrats. I'm sorry, are, are from the South. Um, and so the Republicans now are really, I think, constrained by sort of the racial logic of the electoral coalition that is the Republican Party. They are in the same position that the Democrats were for 100 years. Uh, race is central to the organizing logic and electoral strategies of the Republican Party. So it's not anything about race per se, but when the two parties so, so centrally build race into their calculus, um, of course, it's going to exert enormous influence in American politics. Yeah, and you talk about that influence pretty extensively in the last couple of chapters in this book. So I'd like to turn for a few minutes to the present time, moving forward from the 60s and 70s. And you talk about one area where we see the powerful effects of these racial echoes, which combine with today's race-framed movements, in the proliferation of voter identification bills and other policies, which you suggest are thinly-veiled efforts to restrict voting among minorities. And just a couple of days ago, Glenn Grothman, a Republican from Wisconsin, admitted as much in a filmed interview. Yet, in some ways, these are largely elite-led efforts, these voter ID bills, that the American Legislative Exchange Council, a conservative organization that writes draft legislation for state legislatures to consider, is largely behind these bills. So what's the intersection here between the movement-influenced politics that we've been talking about and the elite-led, highly-coordinated efforts among party leaders to hamper voting among minority groups? Yeah, I, I, would, I would absolutely not suggest that th these kind of voter ID efforts are sort of grassroots movement efforts at all. The, the, as you point out, the, these really are 
um, more elite coordinated efforts, uh, again, by elites both inside and outside the Republican Party. I mean, they may draw some strength or support from kind of local grassroots energies or, or you know, groups or something. But no, the, these are absolutely top-down elite sort of initiated efforts um, by those uh, affiliated with and loyal to the Republican Party, understanding that uh, two things. One, that the party depends hugely on white voters. And secondly, that the demography of the country is changing and the, the, the demographic noose around the neck of the Republican Party is, is tightening. That is, the percent of the electorate that's white is diminishing rapidly. And these are efforts, I think, pretty transparent efforts to maximize the value um, of, of the white vote by trying to restrict, uh, restrict the vote to, to, other, to other groups, other racial, minor, racial and ethnic minorities. So I, I don't see this primarily or, or even um, ha having much to do with grassroots movement energies. This is much more, as you say, an elite driven effort. And it's interesting, I think, how movement dynamics on both the left and the right correspond with these elite-driven efforts to create a situation in which it seems, to me at least, that a movement like the Tea Party intersects in its interests, if not in its mechanisms and strategies with this very same elite-driven effort. So research on the Tea Party shows that it's really difficult among Tea Party activists, for instance, to avoid leading into a discussion of race, even when the focus is on economic issues. There's research by people like Kristen Haltner and Ruth Bronstein about how race has a tendency to pop up in hidden ways in Tea Party discourse. So at the same time as party elites are using policy to address the question of race through laws that disenfranchise minority voters, the movement discourse coming from the grassroots is likewise trying to carve out, it seems, a white heart and soul of conservatism at the expense of other racial groups. Would you say that it's often been like this, that the elite side and the movement side of, let's just say, the conservative movement for now lead toward the same dynamic? Is that a relic of the 60s and 70s, or is that something that's fairly new today? No, I, I think, I mean, really, I, I think this dynamism, this, this, these sort of the intersection, complicated intersection of, of parties and movements uh, is, you know, is one of the really interesting, consistent features um, or important features uh, in American history. There have been periods where this isn't much in evidence, and that's something we talk about in the book. In the post-war period, movements are really... Uh, few and far between. I mean, it, all of us can think of specific examples of some kind of movement activity between, say, 1940 and 1960. So it's a, it's a relative comment I'm making. But if you look at the time series data on sort of movement activity, this period is unbelievably quiescent. It's, it, there's very little uh, sort of grassroots social movement dynamism in this period. And this, not surprisingly... You're talking about the 1940s and correct, 50s here. Correct, the post-war media, post-war period. And 
this is this is not coincidentally a period a period where the two both parties hew to the middle of the ideological spectrum. They're both dominated by moderate centrist kind of wings. And we have this extraordinary period of bipartisan cooperation in Congress, lots of legislation passed, because there's no or relatively little centrifugal pressure from movements pushing the parties to the margins. But, you know, the, the movements obviously come back as a major force in American politics in the 60s. They've remained important to the, to the present, but they were, they were important in, much, in earlier periods in American history as well. Remember, the Republican Party is born of the abolition movement. The Republican Party is an abolitionist party. So th these kind of al alignments, if you will, of kind of grassroots movement interests and party interests, you know, ha ha we see evidence of this or examples of this throughout American history. I do want to say one thing, though. You're saying, yeah, so these interests kind of align between Tea Party types and the Republic, uh, Republican elites. Well, uh, there is some overlap in their interests, but as we as we see, this is we're really seeing uh, a tug of war, a real a real war inside the Republican Party for control. Um, I think elites help to fund the sort of grassroots Tea Party movement, the energies coming out of that movement in two thousand eight, nine, etc. Uh, but I think many of them have been really surprised by where that movement has gone and how fundamentally it has challenged um, sort of the control of the Republican Party, the, the elite or establishment control of the Republican Party. And to the extent that Trump is capitalizing and exploiting some of those grassroots Tea Party energies, uh, you know, he is threatening to implode the Republican Party. And that's precisely why this, the Stop Trump movement is now such a force in, in this campaign season. Yeah, this is interesting because it brings us to a discussion of a major argument in this book that we haven't come to yet, which is the role of economic inequality in all of this. And you point out that in the 1940s and 50s, the immediate post-war era, economic inequality was relatively low, at least compared to what we see today. And that there's some relationship between the movement activity that we see today, that the Tea Party is in many ways as upset about the bank bailouts as they are about anything else. And the economic inequality that they're responding to seems in some ways to vitalize movement activity. Is that your argument? Well, we're making a couple of arguments about sort of inequality. Uh, one, you've already sort of alluded to, and that is during that the post-war period, uh, because of the broad bipartisan cooperation in Congress, you had lots of support on both sides of the aisle for essentially a continuation of the tax and social and fiscal policies that came out of the New Deal. Um, so Republicans were as so supportive of big government uh, high tax rates, um, ex expansions of the American welfare state as Democrats in, in general terms. And that's when we saw uh, sort of income inequality drop to its lowest levels in American history, so far as we can tell. There's not good data uh, much before 1910. So that's one argument we're telling. The, the other we're telling is that as 
the Republican Party moves sharply right on matters of race, part of what it does is use thinly veiled kind of racial arguments to um, critique big government. So uh, Nixon, part of his standard stump speech went something like this. He'd say, you know, the New Deal was a, a real positive force in American life because it was taxing the few for the benefit of the benefit of the deserving many, where the Democrats have gone off the rails under Kennedy and Johnson, et cetera, uh, are with their with their current policies is that they are you know, taxing the many for the benefit of the undeserving few. And in the thinly coded sort of uh, uh, racial language of the day, everybody sort of knew what he was saying. And that kind of uh, attack on big government and the kind of dependence of the undeserving on the largesse of big government has came to be central to Republican arguments uh, and policies, fiscal policies, tax policies, social policies, especially from Reagan on. So race gets joined with issues of income inequality and class um, as, as we move forward in this period. And we're still, we're still there. And so the Republicans, the party is absolutely organized around a commitment to no new taxes, low taxes, shrinking government, et cetera. But at least some of the Tea Party energy, as you say, reflected anger at um, the bailout and you know uh, economic inequality generally, sluggish incomes, struggling middle class, all of those kind of populist issues, which are sort of incompatible with the elite uh, sort of the Republican establishment policies on taxes and shrinking government. So there's tension there. It's really interesting to think about the intersection of race with this idea of deserving and undeserving, because clearly there's some masked racial tension involved in that distinction that doesn't always get a lot of attention. And not just in the way that Mitt Romney talked about the 47%, I'm thinking of work also on the Nixon administration's consideration of a universal basic income policy around 1970, and research by Brian Steensland that highlights the degree to which this distinction between deserving and undeserving figured into the consideration of the basic income policy at that time. And I think that what your book does really nicely for us is to show exactly how important race was in this moment in ways that a lot of times we don't consider. So as we approach the end of our time here, I'd like to once again zoom forward to the present. You closed the book with a fairly sordid assessment of the state of our democracy today, but you also have some prescriptions for possible, at least, ways that we might revitalize that. So I wonder if you could give us your thoughts on what are one or two of our biggest problems today and what are a few things we could do to address them? God, where do you where do you start? There's so much. Um, well, I'm not sure. I would say this is the biggest problem. I I think again that this this um, the revitalization uh, of of racial animus and racial tensions uh, might make it might be at the top of my list. But that that one's really 
it's tough to figure out exactly what the what the responses, the policy responses are to that. But let me so let me go to another one. Uh, I think that we have a system in place, and we talk a lot about this in the book and the origins of this system. The current primary and caucus system is a system that absolutely empowers or amplifies the voice of kind of the ideological fringes um, of, of the two parties, but in particular, the Republican Party, um, and, and winds up marginalizing uh, the policy preferences of, again, the, the, so, the so-called median voter. That's because these are very low turnout elections or devices. Uh, so the primaries typically maybe 15 to 20 percent of the electorate turnout, if that. Um, caucuses is much, much smaller than that. And the caucuses have increased. The number of caucuses have increased over time. Yeah, I waited in line for almost two hours to vote in my caucus here because everybody has to go between 7 and 8.30 p.m. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, um, the 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 what we know about those who do go, who participate in caucuses and primaries is that they are not representative American voters. They tend to be more ideologically driven, more ideologically extreme. So we've gotten very used to in this country over, over the last two decades in particular of watching this extraordinary, extraordinarily extreme, now focus on the Republicans in particular, extreme dynamic during the primaries where all the candidates are pushed far, far, far to the right. You want to talk about the centrifugal force of movements. It's, we see it in the primaries and caucuses. Um, and so, you you know, Romney in 2012 uh, became, you know, most of his policy pronouncements were radically extreme compared to where he had been previously. Then he had to awkwardly try to tap dance back to the middle during the general election campaign against Obama. And this year's, you know, uh, election is even more extreme. I mean, the, the combination of Trump and Cruz make the candidates in 2012 look moderate. Right, and we saw how difficult it was for somebody like Marco Rubio to explain previous choices that he'd made on immigration to this highly conservative Republican primary you got it. That's a That's a great example of, you know, this is, I think he felt he was positioning himself by taking a relatively moderate stance on immigration to be a real contender in 2016, and he was brushed aside. Walker was brushed aside. Bush was brushed aside. We're left with only very extreme politicians. Um, on the on the Democratic side, we're this you know we're seeing something of the same dynamic as Bernie has really pushed Hillary much more to the left than she's probably comfortable being. So we're seeing the same force, and um, that's to me that's a problem. Um, it, it, you know, and it's not the fault of those who are turning out. Everybody has the option, but in point of fact, people are not taking advantage of the opportunity to participate in the primaries and caucuses. So the voice of the ideological margins is amplified and we're, we're producing this very distressing spectacle of extreme politics in our primaries and caucuses. And this is, after all, how we nominate presidential candidates. Um, this, I think, is a real problem. I, it, you know, there's no, well, there are simple fixes. I doubt we'll do them. One would be to pass 
um, a law. This is several countries have this kind of law. Australia's is oftentimes used as the kind of poster child for this. It's a law. There's a law in Australia that requires all citizens to cast ballots. Now, the ballot can say no preference. So it doesn't mean you have to actually vote for a specific candidate, but you are obligated to cast a ballot or to participate in the electoral process. That has that, in, and they, they passed the law a long time ago precisely because turnout was so low and they worried that the results of elections were increasingly non democratic, if you will. Um, if we pass such a law, uh, we would we would very quickly moderate uh, our primary and caucus process. Um, you know, again, I doubt we'll do it, but that would be one way to address this particular issue. We've been talking with Professor Doug McAdam of Stanford University. His book with Karina Kloos is called Deeply Divided, Racial Politics and Social Movements in Postwar America, and it's available from Oxford University Press. Thank you very much, Doug. Jack, thank you very much. It was a terrific set of questions. This episode of Office Hours featured Doug McAdam speaking about deeply divided racial politics and social movements in post-war America, a book he co-authored in 2014 with sociologist Karina Clues. Deeply Divided is published by Oxford University Press. Today's interview was conducted by Jack Delahanty, and it was produced by Matt Gunther at the Sociology Department of the University of Minnesota. If you like this week's take on sociological forces shaping American politics, you might consider checking out Jack's other recent interview with Dr. Andrew Perrin on his book, American Democracy from Tocqueville to Town Halls to Twitter. You'll find it and plenty of other great podcasts and written content on our website, thesocietypages.org.